A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Lore of Us podcast, where the lore hounds your guides to a fungal apocalypse. I'm John. And I'm David. And this is our coverage of the penultimate episode of HBO's original series, The Last of Us. In this episode, we'll be discussing our general thoughts about this episode before getting into our in-depth, scene-by-scene breakdown of Season 1, Episode 8, When We Are in Need, followed by a bulky listener feedback section. Be sure to stick around to the end of the podcast for programming notes about our podcasting schedule for March, which is also packed. We got a ton of feedback for this episode, and we love it. Keep it coming. Um, Having your participation makes for a much more fun show for us, especially since we're coming to the end of the season. Next week is the final episode, and we're planning a season wrap-up podcast that will drop one week after the finale. We want your feedback for that show, so send us an email for either the finale and or the season wrap-up to tlou at thelorehounds.com, or hop over to our website. There's a contact form that you can plug in your feedback there, or leave us a nifty voicemail. Uh, It's a cool little feature, and we can clip your audio straight into our uh, recording. We also have a Discord server and a growing community, so join us there. Link in the show notes. It's a fun group of people, and we keep things well-managed so no one gets unnecessarily spoiled. You know, we love making our podcast for our listeners, and sometimes our listeners want to support us in return. So while you can always get our ad-supported podcasts on your main feed, we've also got a Patreon. So if you want to head over there, patreon.com slash the lorehounds, for as little as three bucks a month, you could subscribe today. Um, That supports us in our production. And you can be part of the ever-growing Lorehounds community. And uh, what, did, what did I say? You get ad-free podcasts. You get early ad uh, access. You get you it get, all. You get it all. You get post-credit bloopers, second breakfast. Very exciting. Yeah, it's good stuff. You don't have the ad, so you can get straight to the meat of it. Or is that a bad metaphor oh, for oh, this Oh, John, that's too soon. Podcast. Too soon. Yeah. 
I mean, it's very on point, uh, but it is a little bit of a shocker. It sure is. Lastly, we'd like to ask that if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, which really helps us get on top of those rankings and find new listeners. We've been getting a ton of reviews and feedback from you, so thank you so much for everyone who has done that. And if you've not yet done it, please do us a solid. All right, David, what were your overall impressions of this episode, also known as the David Arc? Oof, this was a pretty brutal episode. I was a little sad because there were no cool nostalgia songs or movie posters for me to go down rabbit holes with. (laughs) But (laughs) amazing storytelling. It continues to deliver on that scale. The story plots are tight. Uh, I don't know that I wanted three episodes of the David (laughs) story arc. (laughs) This was a really tough subject matter. And I really appreciate the efficiency in storytelling that they were able to wrap this arc up in one episode. I've got everything I needed. I understand the world more. I understand Joel and Ellie's relationship more. I understand Ellie more. I understand Joel more. I got it all. And I got it all in one episode. And I didn't have to hang out with creepy cultists for three episodes uh, with the ever, you know, increasing dread of cannibalism and everything else that, that went down here. One of the other things that I'm really loving, and this really needs to go in the season wrap up, is the spectrum of human society that the show is giving us and how different groups of people and, in, and groups of peoples and individuals are responding to the apocalypse. So we've got Boston, we've got Kansas City, we've got Jackson, we've got Frank and Bill, we've got Marlon and Florence, that was the two old couple, you know, the, the older couple that uh, Joel and Ellie encountered. We've got Silver Lake. Um, so I'm, I'm really enjoying this world that they have created and are illuminating for us because there's a lot to say about politics, about values, about culture, um, and they're doing a really nice job of fitting all of that into really, again, efficient storytelling. Incredible acting by Scott Shepard. This is my first real exposure to him. Did you watch The Young Pope? I did not. I did not watch The Young Pope. He was in there. He was very good in there. Yeah. I love this inversion of who's the monster, right? There was a crazy man. And it really makes me think of uh, the book, I Am Legend, which we talked, I sort of talked about at the beginning of this season. And I don't really want to, I don't want to spoil the book at all. Suffice to say that depending on your point of view, somebody can be a hero or somebody can be a crazy man. And this episode did a really cool job at giving us that point of view. Um, And there's that moment in Ellie when Ellie's realization goes, oh, we're those people, right? We're the ones that have terrorized them, regardless of whether Silver Lake has its own problems or not, right? There was this, hey, there's other people out there that are terrible and doing terrible things, taking people from us. And then we've got a lot to talk about with the David character, about cordyceps and, you know, how he used that. Uh, There's a bunch there. So I'm excited to talk about that when we get into scene by scene. But suffice to say, another banger of uh, an episode and shocking in a, a lot of ways, in a lot of visceral ways, but expertly told. Again, beauty, really amazing storytelling. Yeah, very cool. What did you think? I was 
I enjoyed the episode. I thought I don't think any episode was below an A minus this season so far. Yep. I think that it is it has been an incredible season, and I want to say that up front. I was a little over underwhelmed by this episode. Really? Wow. I was because I think that they made some adaptive choices that I actually disagreed with, and that's the first time I've really felt that way in the show so far. Did you hear that? That was my jaw hitting the desk. <laughs> <laughs> One adaptive choice I think that was wrong okay. was, or I, at least I would not have done it, is they took out a sequence where after Ellie meets David they, and they're waiting for James to get back, they are swarmed by a group of infected and they have to fight them off together. Part of the reason is David had a gun on him the whole time. David had a secret pistol on him the whole time. Okay. And that gets Ellie to trust him a little more. And Uh it sort of gives you a little bit more of his long game. I think that was more interesting. And also it gave more time to work up to, oh, you're the girl who was with that crazy man. Interesting. Okay. So I think that was a mistake. I think this episode could have used another 10 minutes of it. And overall on the season, this is something that I'm starting to feel now that we're getting towards the end. I think that they are underutilizing the infected. Now, most zombie shows overutilize their zombies and yeah. then rely on the action As instead the of the drama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But after a certain point when I haven't seen a zombie for several episodes and they just start to feel like less of a threat, right? It starts to feel like we're not in an apocalyptic world and it's, it's just kind of strange. So I do think that they could be a little less cautious to use violence. Interesting. Okay. To use the, the monsters of the show because I, I need to be reminded that they're there every now and then. Why are we doing this? Why are we going across the country to have a cure? Mm-hmm. So there was that. And then, I mean, I've talked about this on the Discord. I think, you know, we talk about the shippy test. You know, does it go to the core and does it, you know, does it add something to the to the material i don't think that adding the preacher element or do the the choices that they have to make for for putting it on a screen compromise the core sure yeah sure so i don't think that the preacher bit really added to anything Interesting. from the game okay he was not a preacher in the game at least explicitly or even i don't think it was even implied uh, he was just kind of a, an awful person who had a, a vice grip on this town. Okay. And I kind of liked that better, you know? And, Interesting. And listening to the podcast, I liked it less. Listening to the official podcast, I liked it even less because Craig Mason was saying, oh, well, you know, Jackson is a socialist, communist, secular right. society made by a lawyer. And that's, you know, that's doing well. And then we, we show this theocracy over here and that's not doing well. And you look at theocracies around the world and I was like, I don't know, man. This world feels so removed from political structures that it just feels very shoehorned in to then go, okay, we're going to contrast a theocracy and a a communist society here. You know Uh what I mean? Yeah. It just just felt a little bit shoehorned to me. It felt like they were making a point that didn't really add anything to the character motivations. And so, yeah, I didn't like the preacher thing. But other than that, they nailed a lot of other things. So I don't, I don't want to be all negative here. I'm going right. to end on a yeah. positive note. They nailed a lot of things. The torture scene, they nailed it. That was basically exactly in the game. And, okay. and it was perfect. And it was great motivations. They added dialogue with uh, Ellie and Joel at the end uh, when, when he finally gets her and he mm-hmm. says, baby girl. That was not in the game. They added that. In the game, there's like a music swell and you can't hear what's going on. And I like that they actually had him use his Saraline. Right. I thought that yeah. was beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I really enjoyed Joel, like, his, his, like, staggering through these enemies and, and leaning on them. That was a little bit different from the game. And so so they did make some good choices. I just think that some of the choices I would not have made. Okay. That, that's, that's my spiel. And that's from a game player, uh, a, a lover of the game's point of view. Right. And you know, it's funny because I saw a TikTok about it uh, a little while ago. And this guy said, this was the first episode that made me feel like I wish I didn't play the game. Interesting. Because... I I know too much from the game, and I think that they cut out things that would have been beneficial for the show. As a non-game player and somebody who's, again, not watching the behind the scenes or listening to the official podcast or anything like that, I didn't feel that this storyline was out of alignment at all. I felt it was perfectly in line with the story that they've been telling us, and it's perfectly... It was perfectly in line for what I would expect from this world and these different human societies, be they individuals, couples, small groups, large groups, urban centers, you know, what have you. This felt very uh, authentic and real and understandable to me. And even his explanation of how they got to where they are now, it all tracked for me. So again, not being a, a game player, there's only uh, there's only one cri- criticism, and that is Joel did level up. You know, his health bar sort of went up really quick once she got him with the penicillin, and we've got some great feedback about that, uh, which we'll get to in the scene by scene. But otherwise, interesting because my sense of it was this was really nicely right on the tracks that they've laid out. I didn't feel any kind of deviation. Yeah, and so that's the curse of being a game player, right? Is that I'm always going to have something to compare it to. Um, I will say, you know, I would still give this episode, if I'm going to grade it, like an A-. minus. Like, it's still a great episode of TV. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. I would rather have this episode than not have it, for sure, a hundred times over. We're picking nits, right? And that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Right, right. We're we're being the critics for you. You know, (laughs) we're we're in our critics chair. They spin, and uh, that's how it goes, folks. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think with uh, that stuff, anything else that you want to add or should we get into the scene by scene? No, let's do it. Okay. So quickly, overall warning that we're going to be talking about some graphic violence and other difficult scenes regarding sexual assault and psychological manipulation. So whatever you need to do to take care of yourself, just know that we are going to be talking about these somewhat hard to watch and talk about topics. 51-minute runtime, tight episode. We went straight into it, and it finished. So they're really tracking the pacing quite well here. So this is a nice, solid episode. I don't know. Did you feel it was too short or too long, or was it just about right? Uh, well, well, I said I wish there was another scene, yeah, so that's maybe true, another five, ten minutes, but I guess that's about it. Okay, cool. All right, we open with a montage of winter scenes around Silver Lake, Colorado, and a voiceover of a man reading from the Bible specifically Revelations 21. We cut to the interior of a restaurant where we continue to hear, where where the man continues to read from the Bible, and um, we see a group of survivors who are not looking so happy. We never really see the full cult in the game, and I'm Mm -hmm. glad that this is a change that I loved, is that they really humanize these people more, and they showed how maybe David is awful. Mm -hmm. Sorry that I have to use your name in a negative context of the episode, but maybe David is awful. But his town, not necessarily all of the people are. Mm -hmm. I really like the authenticity at which they showed 
the people in this community. They're gaunt. They're wearing uh, makeshift clothes. Um, they have that sort of haunted look of, you know, entering into starvation zone. So they did a really uh, effective job at dressing all of the extras for this. Absolutely. So it turns out there is an actual Silver Lake, Colorado, because, you know, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm going to Google map these things because <laughs> I am. Um, but it's nowhere near where they would have been. Uh, Silver Lake is way over by Boulder on the other side of the state. But that said, uh, it was going around HBO released an official map of their um, little red line and dots of Joel's journey across the United States. So I thought that that was kind of cool. They, they gave us some actual red meat, I should say. Um, they gave us some actual um, um, uh, verifiable facts of where they are in the country. So that was fun. So I want to talk about um, the Revelations uh, ch- um, verse that he's reading here. You gotta. It's not even a Tolkien podcast. We're reading from the Bible. Exactly. Um, I thought it was interesting because this is a big passage in the Bible. This is where we get the Alpha and Omega line. This is where we get the line, you know, stuff about sort of the, the end times and the resurrection of what is going to be the Christian paradise. And he, David skips to verse 4, where he goes from, and God shall wipe away the tears from their eyes, etc., etc. What he skips, which I thought was a very interesting line in a very creepy AF kind of way, is Revelation 21, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And when I read, when I went to the, you know, when I went online and searched for Revelation 21 and I was like reading through this stuff, that this verse gave me chills relative to how David in the show is talking about fatherhood and, you know, being together and whatnot. And I could just see that in his creepy psychology, this is something that he's thinking about. And this is the way that he's relating not only to his flock, but to Ellie as this, you know, in this sort of bride-like way. Right, right. Finding his equal, mm-hmm. he thinks. Yeah. Now, I may be stretching here a little bit, but like, it just really jumped out at me when I, when I read this. You're right. That's pretty, that's pretty icky. Yeah. Um, do you have any other thoughts about Revelations 21? Well, he certainly picked a, a good time to get into the apocalyptic writings. <laughs> he did. It was, uh, you know, he's on brand. He's on brand. We hear a girl crying. Her name is Hannah. And David tries to console her with more lines from the verse or from the passage, from the Bible passage. She asks when they can uh, bury her father. And he replies, in the spring. In the spring. Why can't, they, why can't we bury him right now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. At that point, I knew what was going on. Did you know what was going on? No, I had no clue whatsoever. I was like, oh, yeah, right. The ground is hard. Like, no problem. You didn't expect to be watching an episode of Yellow Jackets, did you? No. Uh, not until a later scene. I, I, I remember the moment that it twigged for me. But uh, at this stage, uh, I wasn't prepared for that just yet. Even though, retrospectively, they're setting it up from the moment we meet Silver Spring, the Silver Springs community. Yeah, you know, my wife and I were debating, because again, we both played the game, we were debating, are they going to downplay or get rid of the cannibalism thing? Uh-huh. When we first started in, he was first with them, and he's like, oh, we're short on rations, maybe we're going to see them go to it. 
And uh, the minute he said, oh, we can bury him in the spring, we, were, we looked at each other like, oh, no, they're going for it. <laughs> there it is. There it is. As the congregants leave, David and James discuss the details of their rations and how they only have a few weeks left. David is concerned by James's lack of faith. James recommits, and then they make plans to go hunting. It's dark. You see what you want to see sometimes, says James in relation to uh, some of the people seeing some deer off in the distance. Do you know that this is a uh, game, Joel? So I, I heard that uh, tangentially um, uh, just before we jumped on. I, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. So his voice is very different in real life than the, uh, the voice actor. Okay. Uh, than his voice actor shtick when he plays Joel. I think it's, again, really cool that the, um, n- the Naughty Dog studio folks brought in the ca- in casting to the HBO production. I, I'm, that just gives me a lot of uh, respect for yeah. this group of creators and creatives. Yeah, and this actor, Troy Baker is his name, he uh-huh. hosts the official HBO podcast, right. too, right. every single week. So he actually got to discuss being in this, in this uh, oh, interesting. role, too. I may have to go back and listen to that, because uh, that would be you cool. You should afterwards. Him. It's a good yeah. podcast, honestly. Honestly, the, the official podcasts usually are terrible. Yeah. All, all of them are usually terrible, because they're usually just trying to sell you the show and like pat themselves on the back. This one is actually really fascinating because it tells you why they made certain decisions. And I think that's why I listen to a podcast like that. So definitely I would recommend it. It's hard too with the official podcast, especially if you have somebody who's a, who's not involved in the production and coming to it afterwards, they won't necessarily have that level of awareness of what, why, why certain creative choices were made during production. So that's, that's cool that they're able to bring that forward a little bit. Not that they should be explaining how the plot worked. But to give us an insight into how television is made, to to actually see the process, to understand the process, that's cool. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's cool. Do you know much about James from the Bible? Uh, I don't. I don't either. So I did do some uh, uh, Google reading today about James, um, and he's closely related to Jesus, some people say that he might have even been like a cousin or a step step sibling, something like that. There's some debate about there. I'm not going to wade into that one. But apparently, uh, James was a little bit of a skeptic until he was witness to the resurrection, and then thereafter, he was quite a staunch uh, supporter and and go and was quite active in going out and and preaching um, preaching the word of of Jesus. And um, I thought it was interesting that they used uh, the name James for David's uh, right-hand man. And uh, I think there's definitely got to be some, you know, in the writer's room, they were definitely playing with this for sure. Yeah, and you know, this character was named James in the game too. Interesting. If you you look at David, you know, David is the king of Israel, king of Judah, actually. Who his he was a great king, but his big sin was lust. Right? It mm. was it was Ooh. killing someone to get to an adulterous relationship with a woman. That's a good pull for this character. His lust is like uh, is overriding his his good sense. Right. Exactly. Very good. Uh, something else I'll mention that they yeah. mentioned on the official podcast that Troy Baker was playing James as getting jealous of Ellie because he saw oh, how yeah. David was sort of treating her like an equal and sort of bringing her on the level sure. and was saying, you know, he doesn't treat me like that. 
I'm going to get ousted if she comes on board. Right. So no wonder he's uh, antagonistic towards her. Yeah. All right. We cut to a scene of Ellie examining Joel's wound and of her trying to take care of Joel. He looks terrible on this scene. He looks absolutely awful. He looks like he's basically dead. Yeah. If I hadn't known that he lives from the game, then I would have thought he was going to die here. Right. Is it me or or does his wound look very bite mark like? Yeah, kind of. Maybe they're trying to go for that imagery. Yeah. I mean, it works obviously with the the roundness of the baseball bat too, but yeah. Yeah, it looks, yeah. And I don't know if, I wonder if that's going to come up into play in future episodes or if that's just me. I don't know. If it looks like a bite to you, let us know on the Discord or, or write in. Because um, I'm like, whoa, that looks like a bite. Um, and, you know, and that's one of the things when people see a bite wound, they freak out, right? Right. As we learned this episode. We do. All right, Sam feeds Frodo the last of their lembas. I, I mean, uh, <laughs> Ellie gives Joel's, tries to leave him some food, and then she makes a choice to head outside uh, to try her hand at hunting. If only had Joel had taught her more. Uh, she stalks a rabbit and then wounds a deer, which is mortally uh, wounded, and then runs off. Yeah, you know, the game actually starts this section, starts winter with Ellie hunting, without any sight of Joel for quite a while. And that's sort of the fake out it gives you of, is he alive? I kind of wish they did that a little bit in the show, not for a full episode, but just for a part of it. Uh huh. And it actually starts with Ellie successfully shooting an arrow through a, through a rabbit. Okay. So it was kind of a tease that they had the rabbit run off here. Right. And then had her trip and fall on her face. Right. But the deer thing it tracks, it's almost exactly like in the, in the game where you know, she basically barters for the medicine with the deer. Okay. And talking of clickers or infected, was that intentional? That sort of clicker sound effects that they had when she was walking through the woods just before she spotted the deer? Well, I didn't notice them. So it really? could have been intentional and it could have not been. I totally like it because that's when she sort of go, gets alert. And to me, it sounded like uh, clicker sounds. And that's what I thought she was responding to, not just the sounds of an animal in nature. But like, oh, there's infected nearby and she's going active, right, with her senses and like looking around and then she spots the deer. Well, my son woke up a few minutes into the episode, so maybe it was drowned out by Oh, Okay, <laughs> it's quite possible. Uh, Obi-Wan was uh, getting one with the force, was he? <laughs> he was. David and James find the deer because they went out hunting as well, but Ellie gets the drop on them. After a brief back and forth, Ellie agrees to split the deer in return for medicine. David orders James to return to their settlement and bring back some penicillin. So, did you trust David at this point? Because again, I, I, I can't give my opinions on this that much because I knew already, but how did you feel about David here? While they hadn't shown us yet any, uh, you know, bad deeds that David has done yet, uh, the fact that he was the the way that he was presenting themselves was very creepy, very manipulative. Like my spidey senses were going off at that point. Like, okay, this guy is saying all the right things. That's wrong. Right? He's saying too, the the things that he's saying are too right. They're too correct. They're too self-effacing. They're too open. They're too friendly. There's no on-guardedness. He was cool. Right. He was a cool customer throughout the whole interaction, and that should tell you something. Well, again, if you knew that he had a gun the whole time, mm-hmm. that might change your opinion of it. So I do think that that scene would have helped that a bit. 
However, the the voice on on David that they put on in the show was not nearly as creepy as the voice in the game. So part of me went, are they going to play him a little differently, just like they played Bill and Frank very differently? Mm, right, right. I do say, I, I will say that I really liked how um, to see Ellie growing, like she seemed to understand tactically how to keep her distance, how to keep the we- her, her weapon always pointed at them. After she sends James off, the way that she em- empties the two rifles, I really liked how she was stepping on the stalks of the rifle and then cycling the bolt to get all the, the rounds out. Um, so all of that was really cool to see her uh, really taking charge in the situation, even though she's a 14-year-old girl and these are two right. grown adult men who are very dangerous. You know, uh, she still was handling herself really well, considering. Definitely. Something I'll note in the production detail is that the on the podcast, they mentioned that Bella Ramsey actually had trouble holding up the rifle because this was a real rifle just unloaded. Yeah. And they kept telling her, you know, point it back up. But then they kept a lot of the takes where she was wavering because that character would waver, too. Yeah, for sure. You're cold. You're stressed out. Your adrenaline's pumping. Yeah, there's it. You know, those things get heavy and they get cold too, right? They're, they're yeah. not, it's not comfortable to carry. One minor nitpick uh, uh, on, a, on two points in this show. When you have an animal that needs to be uh, dressaged, as we've talked about before, dressed, it needs to happen almost immediately. There is no dragging it off to some other spot or dragging it four miles back to town. You need to do that almost right away. And um, so that really kind of annoyed me, but whatever. It's a it's a minor point. Anybody else who's been around hunting or hunting culture like that that might have also rubbed them raw uh, as well. But you know, uh, one of those little things we can overlook. You missed the point, though, David. Is that the the buck is just for show? They're not eating the buck. They're That's eating true. Some people tonight. Mm-hmm. Yummy. Ellie and David wait by the fire inside an old shack. David tries to get Ellie to talk and to reveal her name. Ellie is sassy. David reveals that he's found religion in the aftermath of the outbreak. You're inviting me to your hunger club? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> she was so sassy this episode. Bella Ramsey really just killed it this whole episode. She deserves an Emmy after this. Uh, and th- this was the sarcasm keeps going, and later the, emotion, the emotional range she shows just gave me chills. Yeah, for sure. Um, I have to do a little Earthsea tie-in here, a little Ursula K. Le Guin uh, action. Uh, as you, if you're listening, you probably know we're going to be doing an Earthsea read-through with our good friend, our favorite Tolkien scholar, Marilyn Arpkila. And in the Earthsea books, knowing the name of something, the true name of something, there's a used name, and then there's a true name. And if you know the true name of something, it gives you power over that thing. So I really like how David is always trying to get that control over Ellie by knowing her name, because if he can name her, he can sort of use that to break through her psychological defenses. He, he has a little bit more of a handle on her. He can address her in a way that's a little bit more powerful and a, a little bit more manipulative. Well, she, he does kind of suck her in anyway, because she completely loses focus and doesn't notice that somebody's behind her. Totally. Totally. And he's a good storyteller, right? He's a good talker. He's charismatic. Yeah. He was, he's always been a performer of some kind, right? right? Teachers have to do a performance for their students every day. 
and he also had to pretend to not be a psychopathic pedophile. And, uh, <laughs> and now he does the same thing, but as a preacher. I love getting the details of the Pittsburgh QZ. Uh, I just like these little world-building elements that they see through here. This was also mm -hmm. an Easter egg because, you'll recall, Pittsburgh was the game version of Kansas City. That's true. That's true. And they bypassed uh, that in this show. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So you can see how they got here, too. They went sort of the same way. They went west. Um, I, speaking of David and his use of language, too, he really does infuse all of his uh, conversation with the language of being a preacher. My flock, the apocalypse, right? He's he's really styling himself in that mold and and performing that to his congregants, right? And we can talk about, you know, his is he really religious or not when we get to a, a little bit later scene. I'll tie in another one of our podcasts on Second Breakfast. I'm going to be offering you a list of Nick Cage movies to choose uh -huh. from Ooh. for next month, and one of them is Knowing, which is the apocalypse, but with Nick Cage. I have never heard of this movie, and I had no idea that <laughs> Nick Cage was in that. Well, am I going to my top three that our patrons will vote on? There you go. All right. So James talks about his belief in predestiny and reveals that he knows about Ellie and Joel. James gets the drop on Ellie, but David brokers the deal anyway. Ellie runs back to Joel with the meds, leaving the deer. James questions David's choice in letting Ellie go. And get this. That crazy man was traveling with a little girl. So this is interesting because I, I, it's, it's a very big difference between the situation that led to this meetup in the game and in the show. Because in the game, you had like basically an army of David's men and Joel had taken out a whole bunch of them. Okay. And you could make an argument that Joel didn't need to like go crazy and kill all those people in the game. I don't think there's an argument other than self-defense for Joel in the show. I mean, he was attacked while he was trying to leave. There's no defense to that. And I mean, I know that the community wouldn't know and they would have heard, oh, there was just a crazy guy who just attacked us. But David's smart enough to know what really happened here. Oh, of course he is. Uh, no doubt. And he's using every angle he can to control and dominate the situation and dominate Ellie here, or to yeah. try to dominate her. And when he reveals that he knows, the look on Bella's face, that acting moment of just terror, right? Like, uh, and, then, and then he says, James, lower the gun. And you're like, oh, like, I went nuts. I jumped off the edge of my, my couch. I was freaking out. But this is the whole point about POV, right? Like, are you the crazy man or are you the person who was just defending themselves? Right, exactly. Yeah, and again, like, I, I think that you could make that it depends on your side who's the villain argument in the game a lot more easily than in the show where, I mean, that was a pretty clear cut situation to me. Joel yeah. was trying to leave. Somebody comes up to him and attacks him. He's got to get away from him. Right. Yeah. The dude with the bat totally swung on him on first. They were just going to try and sneak out. All right. Back with Joel, Ellie does her best to administer the penicillin and then lays down with Joel after she does so. That was very cute. Mm-hmm. It was sweet. She really, she really loves him. You could tell they've really bonded in a way that I don't think any of them, either of them expected at the beginning. Right. And um, when somebody is under your care like that, yeah, the, uh, your empathetic, you know, our, our natural built empathies really kick in and turn on. Something that I think we have seen in this episode and maybe we see in other episodes 
is that Joel and Ellie both have extremely violent tendencies, <laughs> but <laughs> you think? they both somehow are checks on each other. Each one of them is less violent because of the presence of the other. And when they are separated, boy, everybody should watch out. <laughs> That's interesting. That's an interesting formulation. I thought about that, how they, when they're um, in proximity, they're l- less reactive. I mean, unless you threaten them. They are much less violent than the sum of their parts. That's interesting. All right. I'm going to keep that one in mind. Keep that one in mind, as we, especially when we go to the, the, the finale. And I want to see in season two where that goes as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there's, there's a lot of horror elements in this uh, episode, and this injection is certainly was some body horror. It made me squirm. I was uh, like looking through my fingers at, at one point. But John, we have a doctor in the house. We do. We have Kathy, who is a general practitioner and former ER doc. So Kathy had written in before about um, how to stabilize uh, that uh, wound with a penetrating object. And um, so she wrote in to illuminate for us a little bit about penicillin and uh, injecting where you should inject it and that kind of stuff. So we've got a a resident uh, expert, a medical expert for us here now on call. So Kathy says, so no, I don't think it's realistic at all, to be honest. He's most likely bleeding internally still. He's got an infected-looking wound, and he's got a fever, so he's got systemic signs of infection. He's unconscious, so he's probably septic and maybe in shock because he's pretty gray-looking, so his blood pressure probably isn't great. Although he's not exactly been living well, he's a pretty fit guy, so probably has a decent physical reserve, but if that guy rocks up to an emergency department, he's going to theater, an operating theater and then most likely to ICU. I don't think a couple of shots of penicillin will do the trick. <laughs> There's also a thing here anyway called the golden hour of sepsis. Getting antibiotics on board as soon as possible once sepsis starts, with survival rates dropping with every hour delay after that. I think it's safe to say they missed it, says Kathy. She continues. The antibiotics given into the wound actually doesn't bother me too much. Ideally into a vein, but I work as a GP these days in family medicine, so I'm in an office in a community, and I would give it in a big muscle group like the glutes, but it's not crazy to go to the source. She's just a kid, and in a dirty, contaminated surgery in hospital, you might well do an an antibiotic bath. The caveat here, as she wraps up her email, is that all medicine on TV is nonsense. I watch every show going, and they're all just silly. But I do absolutely love, and this is the part of where I love her, Kathy's email, because she goes off. But I do absolutely love that Joel's love for his daughter dragged him off that bed and into a spot of murder. Hell yeah, I do, she says. I'm a show-only watcher, so who knows? Maybe he does die of this wound, but I couldn't care less about it being nonsense because I love him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, she says, she continues, I hope this helps. I watched the show with another GP who used to work in the emergency department, and we get into this all the time. And in conclusion, also just briefly to cross streams, and she's talking about our Mandalorian season three coverage. Thank you so much for the Bo-Katan hate. Little Miss Mando sitting on her throne like she wasn't full, a full-on terrorist aligned with people who wanted to murder her sister. 
I'm saying this is what I've been saying the whole time, David. I have a follower here. You do. You, you're starting your own uh, Children of the Watch. <laughs> um, if you haven't checked out our our Mando coverage, we have episode one up, and uh, John writes a cool little musical ditty to make fun of uh, Katie Sackhoff's character Bo-Katan, and it is sure pure musical genius. It, it's a fabulous thing. So go over and check out that pod if you have not already. Well, Kathy, since you brought in Star Wars, now I can say that it was actually hate that that animated Joel, just like Darth Maul. Right. It's true. And, and it was hate that animated you in, in writing that brilliant little song. It's true. Kathy says, I'm a new subscriber, by the way, and just want you guys to know you're ruining my whole week because there's just too much content to go back through. Well, Kathy, thanks for writing in, and I'm not sorry that we've ruined your week. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we, we have a tracking sheet for the length of all our podcast total, and I think we're almost at 90 hours. So wow. I believe you that there's a lot to go through. Yeah. John, uh, any thoughts on Kathy's medical advice, uh, her, her non-legal medical advice? I mean, that makes sense. I, I used to like to watch Dr. House, but I didn't think it was, any, it was factual at all. And yeah, I mean, when people have careers that are portrayed on TV, it pretty much never lines up. And I buy that. So... I like that Joel comes back. I'm willing to look past these snafus, these little nitpicks, and uh, let's just let's just get our hero back. Let's just get let's just get our father figure back. You know, it's it, we we're in a world of of suspended disbelief because of the cordyceps, right? And I'm going to allow that to shade my you know my verisimilitude just ever so slightly to uh, go with Kathy here and just say. That Joel's real power move here is in his psychological determination that he's going to rescue her. And so if he gets marginally better, even just mildly so, that um, passion in his heart is going to animate him uh, in such a way that uh, he's going to be able to overcome that pretty bad wound. So I'm good with it. David, you can say verisimilitude, but you can't say pivotal. Yeah. <laughs> Ironic. <laughs> I can say Ina Lindelay, too. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, we have to. I have to figure out what that thing is when the word sound thing uh, plays tricks in your head because uh, they they did that in Ted Lasso and I I can't remember what it's called. We'll figure it out. Right in if you're if you're doing your Ted Lasso rewatch ahead of season three, you let us know what that is. I'm psyched for uh, season three. I, I really have good vibes for it. So um, I'm Me very too. hopeful. Well, David, I think we need to take a break because I think you're we right. have been going a while. And then when we get back, we'll move on with Ellie and the David Colt. And we're back. David, do you want to bring us through? We rejoin Silver Springs at mealtime. A plate of suspicious-looking meat is brought into the cooks. David and James return, dragging the deer carcass into the dining room with them. They are met with silence, and David explains the situation about Joel and Ellie. Hannah demands justice for her father, and David brutally backhands her for interrupting him. He educates her, and then sits with Hannah and her mother for dinner. This was the first taste of violence you get, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. This is when we really see David's true nature. Oof. It is hard to watch. And 
this character, this this actor for Hannah really plays it really well. Yeah. The way that she just sort of gets really shy and then it's 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 an abusive cycle, right? Is yep. he offers her a yep. hand afterwards and he goes, Now come back. Now you're back in my good graces. Now stay there. And especially the fact that he can look at the mother and she just sits there. Mm-hmm. And she she's will a terrified. Not interfere. Right. Like, what is the enforcement mechanism here? Because David can't possibly take all these people down. So does he have these people that brainwashed that if the mother tried to stop David from doing that, people would, like, restrain her? Well, I think that's where we've got to jump over to Game of Thrones world. And uh, if you remember the character, I think it was the character Varys is talking with Tyrion. And there's a kind of a fable question, like, where does power reside? You know, is it is it money? Is it um, uh, uh, royalty? I can't remember the three characters that the sellsword. A sellsword is asked to choose who to follow, and everybody's you know telling um, the guy to to kill the other two. Um, and so it's a question of of how does David control this group, and he's doing it purely on the fact of belief, right? He has a uh, a lease on life and a, and a mandate. I guess is the word I'm looking for. A mandate from God. So there's, what, at least five guys with rifles, James and, and four other guys, right? Uh, if, I, if, I, if my count is right. Right. They could easily take him out, you know? He can't take all, all, all that many of them. I mean, he runs out of, you know, bullets after three shots at, at Ellie. So he has psychologically dominated them, and he's using religion as this uh, shield and as this spell. Like, he's weaving a spell over these people. I get the feeling that he is also a people pleaser most mm-hmm. of the time. Okay. And that his his lashings out are not very frequent. Mm-hmm. And that people just tell themselves that it won't happen again when it happens. And I think that his decisions have largely been popular for the group until Ellie, where he starts to cash in some political capital. And he's already on... Um uh, in a precarious position because of the cannibalism. Right. Right. Because he's not telling people what's going on. What well, was I just supposed to let them starve? No, but mm-hmm. you tell them. You tell them and give them a choice. Right. Exactly. So uh, did you notice that on David's plate, he had a bit more food than everybody else? I mean, that makes sense. He's the leader, and that's what the leaders do, right? Such a nice little touch on production detail. You know, uh, everybody else yeah. has sort of got a pe- meager piece or two, and He's sitting there with a full plate. Um, and this sound effect of when they all start eating after they finish their, you know, after saying grace, and then all the clinking of the bowls, it was just so creepy and so evocative. And then the when for me, it was when they brought the pan of, of meat to the cooks, just even, you know, even before the deer is, is dragged in. And that's fresh looking meat, right? That's not you know, frozen, three-week-old, you know, venison or something, right? That's, like, fresh-looking stuff. And then they hyper-colored all the food, so it was very red, and it it really sort of made you focus. And so I think from a production standpoint, they really started giving you the clues so that when it does pay off, you're like, oh, my gosh, right? It, like, it it all sort of comes back and, and, and hits you. So this is where you said they're eating people? This is where I knew instantly they brought that pan of meat. I was like, oh, yeah, they're cannibals. Sounds good. 
I mean, uh, not the cannibalism, not, no, but, it doesn't, but the yes. fact that you picked up on it. <laughs> All right, we return to Ellie and Joel. Joel seems to be doing better, and Ellie injects more penicillin. She opens the garage door to air out the horse, and a flock of crows alerts her, and she spies the group from Silver Lake. Yeah, so I love putting the horse in the garage. That's a lot of fun. Uh, feeding the horse snow for water, that was, that was pretty fun. So we have our second dose of penicillin. Did we get any more? Yeah, that's it. That's, that's all the meds that we got. Okay. Well, will Joel actually get better? Apparently. <laughs> um, poor horse. I, I've ridden a few horses in my days, and I certainly don't know anything about care and feeding for horses. But I can't imagine that wearing all that bondage gear for a couple of nights is going to be that comfortable for the poor horse, let alone not have anything to eat. But I kind of get why Ellie put it on. I don't even think it was an oversight. I think it was, I got to be able to go. Well, I don't think she would have been able to get it. Even if she was able to get off all of that stuff, A, does she know how to do it, right? So I don't think she's been, right. she hasn't been around stables enough to know that, uh, all of that. And that's not simple stuff. Um, and then if, once she got it off, there's no way she'd ever get it back on again. Yeah. So it does make sense to leave it on. Yeah. I'm sure we've got some equestrians in our midst. So right in. Yeah. David instructs his group to be wary of Joel and to capture Ellie alive. James questions this and says that maybe it's God's will to let her die in the wilderness. David quietly asserts his dominance. Somebody played the God card on him, huh? <laughs> Doesn't like it very much when it's pulled on the opposite direction. I love the call back to the Kathleen storyline here. Right. You know? that's, that's a good call. I didn't notice that. Yeah, yeah. Totally like, well, maybe that's just the way things happen. Maybe that's fate. Whether it's God's plan or fate or whatever it is, it's out of our hands. And people use that to justify, you know, doing or not doing certain things. So, And this is a world where people do die of random reasons all the time. Right. It's true. Um, I love that the party from Silver Lake looks really emaciated and ragged here. They look very skeletal. Yeah, the, the whole design of the steakhouse, which is a pretty much exact recreation from the game, by the way, the steakhouse and the, the town itself and just how run down everybody looks and such a juxtaposition with Jackson. Jackson yeah, is just completely. a world away yeah. in every single way. Um, you know, and that's something that really, I don't know, bothers me about a lot of these planned community sub-developments that are out in places. Eagle Ridge, you know, Elks Crossing, you know, all of this, you know, very evocative language. Silver Lake. And man, these people are not looking very lakey or silvery. <laughs> <laughs> Something they said on the official podcast was they probably got here in spring. It mm. looked great. Mm -hmm. And they didn't realize how bad the winter was going to get. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. That, that totally. And then he even says at some point, doesn't he, like, we tried to, you know, we tried to do some farming or like it was too hard. We didn't realize how hard it was going to be. Something like that. Yeah. All right. Ellie rushes back to Joel to prepare him, leaving a knife and barricading him into the basement. She mounts the horse and attempt to lead the uh, Silver Lake crew away. James shoots the horse out from under her, and David prevents James from delivering a coup de gras to Ellie, who is passed out as a result of being thrown from the horse. So Joel gets to shoot Ellie down. Game Joel gets to shoot Ellie down. <laughs> game Joel shoots Ellie? J game James. Wait, what? Sorry. I'm saying Game Joel, who mm -hmm. plays James, gets to shoot oh, Ellie right. Down. Oh, right. <laughs> That's a good point. 
Oh, you know something that just occurred to me too, going back to the talk about the steakhouse. Sorry, this is a slightly out of order, but is that a little creepy that it's a steakhouse? Oh yeah. I think that's on purpose. <laughs> oh, they might must be. It must be. Great CGI stunt work here. Um I I watched the scene a, a couple of times and they they stage it perfectly, you know, with the ride, the setup of the shot, uh the the report from the gun. Then there's just this like half of a second of the horse throwing Ellie as it goes down. And I'm pretty sure that that's CGI. And then they cut and it's Ellie rolling into the snow. And if that's what it was, then I have to say kudos on production for saving the stress on the horse of trying to fake a, um, a, uh, you know, a, a trip and fall for a horse. Cause that's really dangerous for a horse and rider. And they gave us just enough CGI that we can't tell that it's fake, um, but it's and it's seamless enough for the whole scene that we really get the impact of being thrown from a horse at full gallop. So good job, production. Yeah, it looked real to me. I thought it was great, and yeah. I thought that the I really felt badly for Ellie at the moment. Right? It looked yeah. really rough. It did. I also liked. We kind of glossed over, but the whole idea of. Ellie preparing Joel. He's unconscious. He's Mm -hmm. kind of opening his eyes here. So he's kind of giving signs of life. And she just puts that knife on his chest and goes like, hey, look, if anybody comes in here, you just fucking kill him. Mm -hmm. You don't ask any questions. And Joel understood the assignment. Yeah. (laughs) We weren't sure as the audience, but we find out that he heard every word, right? I like that he has spidey senses, too, where Mm -hmm. as, as soon as she's in trouble, he just opens his eyes. Right, right. The mode to, <laughs> he has yeah. dad senses. Totally. Um, I also love the fact that these guys are going to murder. So the, l- let me just step back with my statement here. So these people believe in a particular faith, you know, and, and, and probably hold it quite dear and, and deeply to some degree. Um, and part of this faith tradition is salvation, right? Salvation through uh, uh, being baptized in the name of, of this person. Ellie's actually their salvation, like in reality, in this world here today, and they're about to murder her. And I love that, that they're messing with that whole dynamic. If they only knew. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. The real savior, like the logistical savior Mm -hmm. is uh, in their gun sights. (laughs) And as you said, James is jealous. And he's about to, you know, uh, uh, end that whole situation. David orders the search for Joel and the return of the horse back to Silver Lake. David carries Ellie back. You're so hungry for vengeance? Deliver it. (laughs) That was like a, that's a heck of a line, right? Yeah, that was good. He was just like, you know what? Do what you want to do. Go Mm -hmm. door to door. Mm -hmm. It's not delivery. It's DiGiorno. (laughs) Oh, John. (laughs) That's, that's pretty funny and bad. Um... And this is really where, like, okay, David, like, he pissed me off when he struck a child, like, F you, man, that's like, that, that really set me against him. And then just all his creepy psychological dominance. But then when he says, you know, let's slip the dogs of war here, like, go for it. You want vengeance? You're hungry for it? And I love the word hungry, right? Because they are hungry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, whoa. Of course. Then they're going to have another body. Oh, man. Like, that just hit me now. Yeah. Right? Do Deliver these people it. know? I know James probably knows. James definitely knows because he tries to help later. But 
do these people know is my question. Yeah, I'm not going to put it. Maybe one or two of them. I'm not going to put it past them. Um, but even so, they're going to get another one. So you're hungry. There's food out there. Go get it. <laughs> oh, man, that's terrible. It is really terrible. Um, all right. So we've got a couple of overlapping scenes here with the search for Joel and then Ellie in uh, back at Silver Lake. So I'm just going to cover the Joel sections all together, and then we'll talk about the Ellie sections all together, because um, the way that they overlap the scenes, it's uh, easier to talk okay. about them this way. Sounds good. All right. Josiah searches for Joel. Joel ambushes him in the basement and watches as Josiah bleeds out. I just looked up Josiah because I, oh, cool. I've, read, I've read the entire Bible cover to cover I've mentioned on a couple of podcasts, and mm-hmm. I don't recommend anyone do it because it is, it is a slog. However, uh, Josiah, I was reminded, is the king of Judah who does a lot of reforms, and he removes the worship of false idols, of false gods. Oh, so nice. He's hunting out Joel, a false, false god, god, you know, this false leader. I love it. And uh and so now that Ellie will have to worship David instead of Joel. Well, good pull. That's awesome. Are all of these characters biblical names? Did they maybe take on new names when they started this cult? Do we know any other names in the group besides Hannah's James? a biblical name? Well, yeah, certainly Hannah. Um, that I was just going to say, those are the only three that I know, uh, from, yeah, so. I don't recall any others. Okay. It might've gotten a little too, too much if we got, we went that far down the rabbit hole. Alec. Alec was one. Okay. That's not biblical, is it? It probably no. is, but I don't know what it means. Yeah. I, I'm not sure either. The sound effects in the scene were really, you know, hearing the blood leaking out, sort of gurgling. And then that grisly grin that's left on Josiah's face after he bleeds out. I mean, Joel is a cold-blooded bastard. What a shot. This other great thing, I, I, I loved how they emphasized how they really wanted this to be the way it was in the official podcast, is that Joel has to lean on the guy he just stabbed after he does it. Oh, I didn't even pick up on that. Because he's just so ragged by this point. Right, like a, a boxer, like boxers towards the end of a fight where they're leaning into each other. He's like, all right, you're stabbed. Now give me a hand. Right. <laughs> At the very end of this, we get a flash of the watch, of Joel's watch that Sarah yeah. gave him, or fixed for him. So I thought that was a nice little touch. All right, um, Joel then hunts down the other two and capture, captures and brutally interrogates them. He murders them both. I ain't telling you shit. It's okay. I believe him. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that line is directly from the game. And this was, you know, I complained about them taking out a line earlier in the series of the he's not even sick. Uh-huh. But this was one where if they had left this one out, I would have rioted. Okay. Because it is such a good line. <laughs> it really it's is. It's okay. I believe him. <laughs> and he says it so calmly, kindly, matter of yeah. factly. Now let me hit you with a pipe. Yeah, that was rough. And this... <laughs> Uh, boy, um, I, I have to say it was really weird to hear Din Djarin's voice torturing someone. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I'm used to him talking to Grogu and, you know, and, and uh, you know, being a gunslinger, not talking about popping uh, somebody's kneecap off. Like, that was like, it really weirded me out. Because we haven't heard um, Joel talk in a long time. No, we haven't. And Two episodes. Since, yeah, since Mandalorian has come back and Pedro Pascal is in both, I've been hearing his portrayal of Din Djarin and Mando and not as Joel. So, like, it really did my head in. 
Now, if you got to David before Ellie did, would he have said, I can bring you in warm or I can bring you in cold? Oh, that would have been terrible. It would have been, been terrible. terrible. Thank God they didn't do that. Yeah. All right. Back in silver. So, so we're going to switch over now to Ellie in the cage. Back in uh, Silver Lake, Ellie wakes up in a cage in a kitchen. Um, and this is where I got, just side note, this is really where I got um, uh, the Walking Dead vibes from what was that, season seven? No, no, wait, season. I, I don't know. Was, I didn't watch it. Okay. David tries to gaslight Ellie into believing that he can help her. While attempting to escape, she spies a human ear on the floor and realizes that Soylent Green is people. He brings her food and continues his gaslighting. Oh, boy. The ear on the floor really just sells it. I don't remember if that was in the game or not. It might have been. You can write in if you remember. But it really just gives her ex- exactly what she needs to know, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to chop me up into little pieces? Mm-hmm. And that creeping sense of, oh, dear, good, you know, dear Lord, like, what is this place? What is going on here? This is not just... You know, it kind of adds layers, right? It's not just people who want revenge on me. It's people who want revenge on me who eat people. And mm-hmm. then later in the scene, he's going to add the pedophilia thing. So right. it's just layers of danger that keep ramping up here. Yeah. And I love Ellie as like this feral little child in the cage, like hissing and like, you know, if you've got a kitten that you've like rescued, you know, or whatever. And it's like, hey, it's like hitting. <laughs> And it's like, she's just a little monster. I love it. Bella Ramsey is doing an excellent job. I mean, I know that they have told the actors not to look into the game so much because they don't want them to copy the characters, but really embody the same spirit of, I am just going to cause a ruckus. Mm -hmm. I am just going to make you uncomfortable until I'm out of here. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to challenge everything about you. I'm going to take you to task. Yeah, uh, from the top to the bottom. So let's talk a little bit about David and um, uh, his belief and his use of religion and his gaslighting and grooming. Um, I transcribed the dialogue from this section of the scene, and uh, it starts out. He says, "If I let you out of that cage right now, put that knife of yours in your hand, you'd stick me in a second. You have a violent heart, and I should know. I've always had a violent heart." And I struggled with it for a long time, but then the world ended, and I was shown the truth. Right, by God, says Ellie. No, by cordyceps, says David. What does cordyceps do? Is it evil? No, it's fruitful. It multiplies. It feeds and protects its children, and it secures its future with violence, if it must. It loves. Why are you telling me all of this? Because you can handle it. In a way that the others can't. They need God. They need heaven. They need a father. You don't. You're beyond that. I'm a shepherd surrounded by sheep, and all I want is an equal, a friend. Yikes. I did complain in the Discord last night. Yeah. I did not like the weird cordyceps section. Okay. Because even if you, even if I maybe use the wrong word, I said, seems like he worships cordyceps. Right. Maybe that's not the right word, but. Right. Even this whole idea of like... He admires it. Yeah, like, I'm going to admire the cordyceps. It feels to me like this was part of a plot line that got cut. That, you know, maybe he finds out that she's infected Mm -hmm. and sort of becomes even more devoted to her of like, oh, you're one with the cordyceps. I don't know. There There was something there that just felt 
out of place to me. Interesting. So I wish they had not included this section. I would have been fine with the, you know, the violent heart speech. I just, I did not like the cordyceps speech. Okay. So we can like work backwards on David here a little bit. Obviously he's, um, uh, 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 a pedophile, uh, that he's gaslighting grooming. Maybe there's some, what's the other, uh, what's the thing I'm thinking of? Um, the, uh, narcissistic. I mean, maybe there's mm-hmm. some narcissistic tendencies in there. I mean, I'm not a, a psychologist enough to, um, you know, break down all his, uh, his psychological faults, but he is, he is practiced and adept at the use of psychological manipulation. Yeah. Especially when you put into context that he was a teacher. Right. And he, he said at one point, I used to teach kids your age, mm-hmm. which is just terrifying. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just how many people did he abuse before the apocalypse? So then, you know, working backwards from there. So we know where he sort of starts from his own, his own uh, admission, right? Yeah, I've got a, like you said, a, a, he's got a violent heart. So then is, and then he says he's shown the truth by cordyceps. So we could say that, you know, in an apocalypse situation, we can, you know, talk about, you know, people are challenged to a way and they either, you know, they respond in one way or another. Kathleen responds by becoming a leader, right? Um, a, a vengeful leader. Uh, Joel becomes, you know, a bloody-minded bastard. You know, Tess becomes a, um, an operator, right? She's a, a sk- not a scam artist, but right, she's hooking up deals and doing this stuff. Frank and Joel have, you know, their, or Frank and um, Bill have their whole thing, right? So everybody responds in these different ways. So he is responds by saying, oh, the normal rules of society no longer apply. Therefore, me and my violent tendencies, I'm now free in a way that I wasn't free before. And I can grow via the wood wide web just like a cordyceps. <laughs> just like a cordyceps. That's something else we dropped. Now I'm going to do a side rant. Okay. What happened to the wood wide web? That's I wish question. that we got more of that. Yeah, that goes into your point that we're not getting enough of the. Um, we like right. the restraint, but it's almost too much at this stage. Right. I think that they're just a little bit overly cautious with these infected. I, again, like you said, it's good to be restrained. It's good to not use the violence as a crutch. But, I, you know, these episodes are, what, 45 minutes sometimes? Mm-hmm. We could add five more minutes of fighting the zombies. Sure. I wonder what, yeah, I wonder what they've got in store for us in episode nine. Yeah. Uh, they may be saving it all up. So my question with David is, is he um, cynical and is he just using religion as a tool of control or does he actually have some belief in a uh, Christian-esque you know, uh, a faith set, value set. Oh, I don't think he believes it at all. Okay. At all. All right. Because he says these people need, he says it disdainfully, right? These people need heaven and Mm -hmm. God and a father. You don't need that. You're above that. You're Mm -hmm. beyond that. So he's saying, I'm also beyond that. Let's Mm -hmm. be together on that plane. We can rule as father and son. I know. There was a bit of Star Wars here, too. Totally. Uh, There was another uh, uh, team-up that I was thinking of, and I couldn't remember what it was, but it was totally... Sauron and Galadriel? Yeah, that... Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so we're we're agreed that he's uh, he's cynically using religion to control uh, the people. Okay. Definitely. And he's taken on... I mean, he's studied really well, right? He reads the Bible, he talks about flocks and apocalypses and shepherds and all this kind of stuff. So he's... Um, uh, good enough in his shtick that it's very hard to, it would be very hard to suss him out 
unless you were like yeah. a real, you know, uh, religion scholar. Yeah. Okay. Shall we bring in another voice? Sure. Yeah. Let's do that. So our good friend, Brandon the Bard, who is going to be joining John on one of our new Lorehounds projects called Lorehounds Play, um, which is going to be a video game centric uh, podcast. That's going to be an occasional one. So John and Brandon are going to um, get together and talk about some of these story-based games, do some analysis and break down like we do with our television shows. Anyway, um, Brandon jumped onto the Lorehounds website and left us a voicemail today because he had an insight about the uh, potential source character for David's character, uh, a real-life person who was um, sounds like just as much of a monster as, as David was. So here is Brandon the Bard on our voicemail system. Hello, uh, occasional lorehound Brandon the Bard here, just calling in because I was interested that um, I was listening to the HBO official podcast and they were playing some clips of the episode of David, our David in the show, played by Scott Shepard. Uh, and a lot of his tone and mannerisms reminded me a lot of Warren Jeffs. Um, if you do not know, Warren Jeffs was a cult leader of a uh, sort of fringe Mormon movement, and uh, he was convicted of felony counts of uh, bad things with children. If you want to ruin an afternoon, you can look into it. Not for the faint of heart, but I think a lot of his tone and cadence really reminded me of him. Uh, there's a popular true crime podcast of my myriad interests, one of them being true crime. Uh, last podcast on the left, they covered Warren Jeffs on uh, in a little bit of a series. And um, listening to the episode, like, of uh, Scott Shepard speaking, it really feels like he's channeling Warren Jeffs there. And, you know, they, the two men, David and Warren, have a lot in common, I think. Um, they, they just use their power to manipulate and control those around them. They both have a taste for young, the young, which is not a cannibalism pun. It wasn't an intentional anyway. But, but yeah, um, pretty interesting. I'm not sure if the show is trying to make that parallel or if Scott Shepard was, but man, it re I really picked up on it. And I don't know if that's my brain being ruined or not. But anyway, thanks for the podcast. Uh, excited for the last episode. David, are you familiar with Warren Jeffs? Not at all. I mean, I'm familiar that enough in uh, American history that we have had a lot of charlatans and um, in oh, our This guy's history. recent. Yeah. And I hadn't heard of him at all. Yeah, I've actually watched at least one, maybe two documentaries on him with my wife. Oh, wow. We watch cold documentaries sometime. That's a that's a little <laughs> hobby that we have. Uh, and he's really creepy. And and Brandon's absolutely right. He's channeling the voice because Warren Jeff speaks with this very very quiet tone. Mm -hmm. And now that he's in prison, a lot of these documentaries say he has more power now because he's now a martyr to the cause. Oof. He has more power now over his cult than he ever did. That's terrifying. That's really scary. It sure is. So as Brandon said, if you want to ruin an afternoon, go look into it. I think Showtime might have a good documentary on it. Somebody has a good documentary on it. Just look okay. it up. Okay. I, I might avoid that one. Uh, but I take, the, I take the point, and I'm glad Brandon was able to clue us in a little bit that because it makes, it, it makes David's character even more chilling to know that there is a real-life source for this. This isn't just fiction. Yeah, definitely. And really, Scott Shepard just absolutely nailed this role. He 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 just gives me the chills. Uh, and I really I haven't encountered Scott Shepard before. Um, he, as you said, he was in The Young Pope, and I looked at his filmography a little bit earlier today. And there's a lot of stuff that I'm not familiar with. So I'm really hoping that this is his breakout role. He was great. 
as you said, I hope we see him in more. All right. Um, so Ellie then tricks David into uh, touching hands with her, and she breaks his finger in an attempt to get his keys, but he overpowers her. Tell him that Ellie is a little girl who broke your effing finger. <laughs> Just a I love how she stuff. starts so quietly there. Oh, man. And then tell them that Ellie is the little girl who broke your fucking finger. <laughs> the rage that Bella was channeling there was incredible. Yeah, really incredible acting. And it's very similar delivery, like I said, to the to the game. It's, mm-hmm. I don't know how. It's just so funny how you, you give them the same direction and they really do get they to really that take same it. place. And man, Ellie is just a devious, devious little girl here. Like the way that she's like, she she's allowing David to think that he's wooing her. And the way that she puts her hand on the bar and then his hand on hers and then her hand together. And like that was so, I would have like, my heart would have been pounding out of my chest. Like I'm not a good poker player. Cause like when I'm getting on a big hand or something like that, I start to freak out. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, it's actually happening. Oh, it was uh that she's able to maintain her cool here is really points out how much of a badass she is. Yeah. All right. We see Joel entering the village and tracking the horse carcass. He makes a grisly discovery. So if you didn't know by now, now you do. They sure are cannibals, aren't they? Um, and there's three uh, bodies that are in this. Uh, right. So who's So they're that? definitely not new to it. No. Right, it's been going on for a little while, a little bit longer than maybe David and James want to let on. All right, so uh, final warning, we're going to get into the end sequences here. We have some uh, sexual assault against the minor and some extreme violence. So we're going to be talking about that. And if that's something that um, is uh, uncomfortable for you, you know, do whatever you need to, to take care of yourself. Um, all right, David and James return and attempt to butcher Ellie. Ellie tells them that she's infected and reveals that she bit David. James' lack of faith shows itself, and Ellie uses the opportunity to kill James and escape. Yeah, uh, I love, again, Ellie (laughs) Ellie in the show is killing Joel in the game. Pretty funny. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, the shot looks great. The shot of him dying just looks incredible. Mm Mm-hmm. The whole twist of her using the infected trick was amazing when she did that in the game my jaw was on the floor and uh-huh. so i'm glad that they kept it for the show because oh, it's nice. perfect for the character yeah like um i was I, I i was panicking like what is she gonna do to get out of this and then when she did that i was like oh that was brilliant that was a brilliant to keep your head enough under that circumstance to be able to make that play wow like ellie is ellie is really coming into her own here yeah um, and I love how, yeah, how even though she wasn't trying to play on James' lack of faith in David, it plays into that perfectly. The moment that there's a crack, you know, it, it just throws the whole thing out. And then the, when she hits him with the cleaver, it was so sudden and so violent that I jumped up and my, my spouse was in the other room. She's like, what the hell is going on out there? Because I was listening with <laughs> headphones on. Uh, and she was like, what is, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I freaked out big time. I love too that before David had lulled her into a false sense of security with his story. Mm. And now she sort of uses oh, panic yeah. to distract with her story. He, she, she makes them feel unsafe in a different way when she's really the one who's unsafe. 
Nice. I love that. Yeah, totally. She totally turns the tables on him. All right. Ellie hides in the dining room and throws a burning log at David, which sets the curtains on fire. David continues to stalk Ellie, who stabs him and then brutally kills him after he attempts to rape her. I had seen some people argue in the game that David was not trying to rape her uh-huh. because there was not the line of, you know, I, I like the fight the best or whatever he said, which was very gross. And I think a little bit on the nose. I think that one was a little too much. Mm-hmm. But I guess the one positive about it is that there's no more debate over whether this guy was actually going to assault her because I think that it was clear as day, even in the game, you know, this guy was a monster. He was not just into Ellie in a non-romantic way. He was really trying to be a predator. Yeah. And the fact that the violence itself was the thing that was exciting him. Right. Awful. He's, He's been under control and under wraps this whole time. And then like. Oh, here we go, right? You know, all, you know, all bets are off and I'm I'm going to, you know, I I don't know, it's hard to describe this in in a way cuz I don't want to give superlative words. It's but he's really um yeah, it's uh he's he's really being himself in a way, I guess. He's right? a monster in every way. Yeah. He really is. And the mask is Ellie, coming though. off and and he's 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 exercising that to its fullest expression. Yeah, and Ellie is clearly extremely traumatized by this. Oh, my and, Lord, yeah. You know, the fact that she just keeps swinging Striking. and swinging way past when he's dead. Right, right. Just, I mean, it really shows how shaken up she is by this. This is a really, as you like to say, pivotal moment <laughs> in her character development. Really is, is yeah. Is just keep being one with the, the rage inside her. Mm-hmm. And justifiably, I mean, you know, absolutely justifiably, but it's, it is, I think she was scared of herself a little bit there too, right? She lost control. She, she totally lost, lost control, control. with her rage. Yeah, totally. Interesting, again, to see an, a, a second storyline where the need for revenge consumes the um, logical thought. So we had Kathleen after Henry and, you know, throwing, you know, even when she was confronted with evidence of uh, underground infection spreading she's like no we're going to focus on that second henry's our priority here david just straight up looks at the burning curtains and the burning building and goes no i'm gonna follow through on this little situation here and then i'll worry about the the burning building so again revenge consume the how revenge consumes you and then ultimately leads you to your downfall seems to be a a message that they've, they've hit on twice here well, I think Ellie was also consumed by this and would have been in the burning building. The one thing that I think was a little bit of a bad change from the game here mm. was that in the game, Joel had to take her off of David. Okay. And I think that that was good for their relationship. That was, you know, I'm being a check on your violence, just right. like you're a check on mine. Right. And I wish they had kept that. They said in the in the podcast that they logistically because it was locked they didn't think joel could get inside uh-huh. that that to me is an excuse because yeah, you could have just yeah, yeah. not had the doors or locked line or another another door broken in the window or something right you know there were there were ways many ways to do that i think that that was a, a moment that they should have kept but i i think that they made up for it in the next scene which sure you can, you can do that now right well, I, well i've got one thing i want to add uh first is this whole scene and scenario, this is the one uh, 80s reference that I'll, I'll make for this. This is the only reference that I can make in this episode. 
And that's a uh, 1980 book called The Burning Bed that then was made into a, uh, a made-for-TV movie in 1984 with uh, Farrah Fawcett. And it was one of the first screen adaptations of um, talking about domestic violence. And uh, spoilers, um, you know, the, the, the woman who was being abused uh, sets the house on fire with where her abuser is, you know, in bed. And so that's where the, the, the Burning Bed title comes from. But it was a real watershed um, show and book to bring the issue of sexual violence forward, you know, so that you know people could actually start to talk about it and and right. and ha- actually have it in popular culture. So for me, as a child of the '80s, seeing this uh, this really just um, um, resonated with me with that particular thing uh, with this burning building and and this assault that uh, that takes place in here, and she leaves his body, you know, to be uh, um, burnt. Yeah. And something else in this scene, I'll say, is that they did successfully subvert the trope of the Papa Bear's got to come save yeah. the cub. Yeah. He comes to save her, but she doesn't need saving. She saved At herself. Least, yeah. And he does comfort her afterwards. He's there sure. for her emotionally. But it's not like he needs to get her out of David's grips. I really like that too for a for a, a female protagonist, a, a a a young protagonist as well. She totally saved herself in this entire situation. Now it's going to have a yeah. cost on her, but you know she had to escape from some really horrible stuff. But yeah, that's a really really good point. Like there is no no one came to save her. She saved herself. Yeah, good one. Oh, I like that. Wow, the, uh, Ellie's Ellie just keeps growing in my estimation as as far as like horribly violent as both of them can be. Their abilities are, are very impressive yeah, to me. They're very impressive, yeah. Outside, Joel and Ellie are reunited. It's okay, baby girl. I got you. And then we see the watch again. Yeah. And the watch is, you know, pretty much in the same place it was when he was holding Sarah. Mm-hmm. And he called her baby girl as she was dying. Yeah. So it was just really evocative of that. And and I love this line. I'm really glad they put it in. It broke my heart. Mm. And like I said, this line sort of made up for all my nitpicks right? because it was perfect. And I, I love the way they reunited. Yeah. You could, you can um, nitpick on all kinds of things. Joel's miraculous recovery, dragging horses around, what have you. I mean, dragging a horse for miles is not going to be easy work uh, for starving, for half starved people. All of that aside, this line just is the bow on the, uh, on this package of a, of an episode for sure. If you can sell me on quality character moments and development yeah. and great dialogue, then I will overlook a mountain of nitpicks. <laughs> For sure. And, they, and this delivered both of their emotional atten- intensities, Bella Ramsey and Pedro Pascal. They were really such a match for each other in terms of the delivery of what job they're doing as actors, because it was palpable. It was coming off the screen. You could tell in real life they're becoming friends, too. I mean, there was this... This recording where they they discussed what article of clothing would you take from your time on Game of Thrones? And she said she'd take his armor, and he said, I'd take my robe. (laughs) And and then he'd have to swish around, and she'd have to protect him because he'd be just too busy swishing in his robe. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) what'd you think of this episode, David? We've gotten to the end. Yeah, uh, brutal, intense. Uh, shocking. I was really shocked uh, by a lot of it that they went there with a, a bunch of this. But I really, like you said, I really feel 
the emotional impact of their reuniting and the fact that they've both gotten through this uh, crucible uh, and that they are becoming whatever it is. They're, they're in an act of becoming, right? They've, they've finally acknowledged their love for each other. They've had to prove it by going through, you know, through this uh, 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 ordeal, this trial. And now that they're back together and reunited, uh, how that is going to grow, how to, where their relationship is going to grow is, and what they're going to become, I'm very invested in. And I'm really excited to see where, I don't know if excited is the right word. I'm committed to seeing what, what goes on next because um, entertainment value, this was a hard one. This was uh, the yeah. violence against a, a child. Um, you know, the, the gaslighting and psycho- psychological ma- manipulation was horrifying to, to see it. Um, and because they did such a good job with the production of it, it was a little, little disturbing. It was. It was. But I will say this is that the violence, well plentiful, was not gratuitous at any point. No, I Everything agree. had an implication for the character's mm-hmm. development and for the relationships between characters. And I love that because it's not like people are mad. You know, when people complain about grimdark things, it's not that people are saying there should be no violence. Maybe some people want that, but mostly I think people are just sick of seeing violence for violence's sake. And this didn't give you that. This gave you something that meant something. Yeah, agreed. Um, Yeah, even Joel's interrogation and torture uh, was right. very driven and, and pointed, if I may be yeah. so bold in my metaphor. And it shows you how violent he can get oh, when he Lord. really wants something. We didn't really go into that at all, did we? We didn't really talk about how uh, how brutal Joel. I mean, we've taught, we've heard, oh, Joel was bad. He did bad things. And when we saw, um, oh, what were they? The 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 two two older characters in the cabin, uh, Marlon and Francis, or uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, yeah. I, said their names earlier. I, I, I just blanked them. Anyway, they're just treating him kind of, you know, casually. And, and uh, well, you know, I got to hold a gun on you because I'm, I'm, I'm invading your space a little bit. But here, oh, man, Joel is not messing around. And he will do everything that he thinks he needs to do to get what he wants without reservation and without, uh, without hesitation. I wonder if that's important to his character. <laughs> Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> These showrunners don't seem like they're sure with what who Joel really is. Give me one wild prediction for the ending of the season. Um, gosh, I haven't. I you know, I, it's so hard because I'm I'm just so in the passenger seat here, taking a ride with my best friend. Um, you know, Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann are my best friends now on the show, and. They're just taking me where where they're gonna go. Yeah, I I have no I have no idea what is going to be in store. There's no clues in this episode as to what's next. There's no foreshadowing. There's nothing for me to grab onto, and I don't know anything about the game, and I don't want to know anything about the game. I mean, I think in a real show, a real show, a normal show, a lesser show, they might try to get back to Jackson or Tommy. And um, and Kim would come riding, and they'd be saved. I kept waiting for that to happen, for Tommy to yeah. show up and and start sniping, you know, uh, David or you know, somebody <laughs> else. 
Uh, but that just shows you how trained I have become as a, as a viewer. So I, I apologize, John. I have nothing to give you on a wild That's all right. uh, uh, prediction. If this were another show, I probably could do it easily. But I yeah. really don't know where they're going to take me with this. Oh, wait, I've got one. I got okay. one. Uh, a horde of infected. Uh, a mega horde of infected. Okay. All right. So when I played the game the first time, and then I waited a few years before my second playthrough, I didn't remember basically anything about the game except the ending, because it was so impactful that okay. it stuck with me years later, and I could not stop thinking about it. So I'm okay. excited to see your reaction to okay. season one. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, maybe we should take a little break, and then we'll get into some feedback. Sounds good. back so our feedback bag is full john we asked for it and uh, uh our listeners wrote in and we've got a lot to go through so you ready i'm ready all right gavin b he wrote in using the contact form on our website lorehounds.com he says hello gents just a couple of questions about symbolism i had from the last episode in left behind we see a poster for a movie called dawn of the wolf Later on the episode, we see Ellie wearing a, a wolf mask. Good pull. The moment Ellie removes the mask is the moment she fully realizes the true extent of her feelings for Riley and is no longer trying to hide them. Could this be Ellie's own Dawn of the Wolf? Well done. Ah. Wolves are also traditionally associated with wilderness, danger, and also the idea of a lone wolf. Do you think that there is something in this wolf metaphor to describe Ellie's journey? Also, Near the beginning of the episode, we see Ellie being called into the captain's office, where he presents her with two choices. The bad choice is represented by a coffee mug. In my homeland of the UK, the word mug is typically used to mean someone who is stupid or foolish. Also, the keys, the good choice, could represent potential, the idea that keys can unlock doors to a better future. What do you guys think of this? Loving the show? Keep up the good work. Good work, Gavin. This is the kind of feedback I love. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know, something that I, I, when I sort of was editing our podcast last week, something that I thought about that I should have said was... I hate that. Ellie got two choices, two sets of choices in this mm -hmm. episode. One for her path to the future and one for the way it will end. Uh, say more. She got one set of choices. Yeah. With the, with the Mr. Mr. Soldier Man. Yeah. That said, what do you want your future to be like? Right. And Riley gives her a choice of what do you want your death to be like? Whoa. Wow. That's, uh, I, that, that is like, that has a lot of, I, I'm, I'm reeling here. I'm kind of, you, you've stopped me in my tracks, John. Well, as a podcast, not as much have, as Riley was stopped in hers. <laughs> that's true. That is a really cool thought. In the same episode, we give, uh, we get a future. In, wow. That's very cool. So again, this show is just operating on all these levels. Um, yeah. Dawn of the Wolf is a great thing. Totally missed that. And I think it's absolutely a metaphor. I think Dawn of the Wolf is a, um, an in-game in Easter egg, though, right? It's like a fake movie. Yeah, that, that was something in the game that I didn't even remember. Somebody reminded me afterward, or maybe you reminded me in the middle of the podcast. But 
Yeah, I like this idea of the mask sort of freeing her. Sort of, she puts on a mask to take off a mask, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. As, as soon as she has a barrier. When I used to play the guitar, when I used to gig, I used to feel much more comfortable singing if I was also playing the guitar because I had a barrier in front of me. Right. And I think yeah. that she felt comfortable being herself with Riley once she had a barrier. Right. And then you got to take off the mask because you can't kiss through uh, latex over your head like that. Well, maybe you could try. some people, I think there, I might've just offended a very large community of people. And I apologize if I did so. <laughs> um, and Gavin, thank you very much. I made a call out to our UK listeners and you responded. So thanks for everybody in the UK who is listening to us. Um, I've got a lot of roots in, the, in London and, and around the UK. So love to hear from you guys. Thank you. Next up, Cassie says, Hi guys, thanks for your podcast. As a non-gamer, I really appreciate the non-player perspective you provide. In listening to your last episode, it sounded like you guys weren't sure what the Will Livingston reference meant. In a rewatch, I noted that it happened just as they saw the dam that produces electricity. To which Ellie said, Damn. (laughs) Joel then said, You're no Will Livingston. The tone of this exchange made me realize that this was actually an attempt at one of her puns. And with a little Googling, I found that Will Livingston is the author of the pun book she has. I think this is a nice, subtle character moment, showing that Joel has finally accepted the puns and the book, and by extension, Ellie and her quirks. Agreed. Which is a marked change from the first time she brought it out, and he looked physically pained. I totally agree. Yep. It's made all the more poignant with the latest episode when we get better insights into how much that book means to her, and how shared enjoyment of puns is a way she bonds with people. Thanks again, Cassie. P.S. On my first watch through, when I saw the water falling and heard the name Livingston, my first instinct was to think it was a reference to the English explorer who discovered Victoria Falls, i.e. the first white guy to see them, Yep, which are the largest waterfalls in the world. As if Joel was saying, this isn't that great of a discovery when she showed her amazement. (laughs) Vic Falls borders present-day Zimbabwe and Zambia. And in fact, the closest town on the Zambia side is called Livingston. Ooh. But it took about two seconds of scrutiny to figure out this was not the reference, since there is no way Joel, who thought Jakarta was in the Middle East, (laughs) would know this. And with some fact-checking, it turns out that the explorer's name was David Livingston. A lot of Davids today. Yes. Nonetheless, thought I would share this piece of trivia. Awesome. Yeah, I loved, um, I, and I loved with uh, Riley that, you know, she got the first Will Livingston book, so that there's this uh, connectivity a- across that. Um, and I thought that the whole Will Dam, you know, Will Livingston pun book thing when they were standing in front of the dam was them sort of winking to us as the audience a little bit as well. So I totally caught the, the joke and I, w- I took it like, an inside joke that I was sharing with the showrunners at the same time. I love this rabbit hole that you went down with the waterfalls and Zimbabwe and Zambia and, and all of this stuff. So, yeah. This is your style, David. This is totally. This is Lorehounds. This is, this is the juice. This is the podcasting juice. Yeah. Jordan M. from the UK, another UK listener. Hey, hey. Says, hi, guys, UK listener here. I first heard of you through your guest spot on the Theon chapter of Electric Bookaloo and have since gone back and listened to your Tilu and Silmarillion episodes, which I've greatly enjoyed. Awesome. I'm a lurker by nature, but your call-out in the last episode inspired me to share some of my thoughts on the series as a whole so far. I've been a huge fan of the franchise since the release of the first game, and so far, I'm absolutely loving the series. 
My few minor quibbles boil down to certain scenes being more impactful for me in the game, such as the You're Not My Daughter and the Henry Sam death scene. But I've played both games so many times that it's sometimes hard not to directly compare and ignore my bias. As I said, though, these are very minor issues, especially since these scenes are still succeeding in achieving the intended emotional response from me. I don't subscribe to the complaint of the show not having enough action or being too slow-paced. To coin a phrase from Craig and Neil, the show is chock-full of emotional action scenes that keep me gripped from the start to the finish. Especially with the subtleties of performances, I think the creators are being very smart with how they distribute action. Almost every time an infected appears, for example, people die. Tess, Sam, Riley, all of Kansas City. The restraint had made the infected actually feel dangerous. Besides, I think the last two episodes, not to mention adapting part two, which is actually my favorite of the two as an aside, will satisfy those looking for action. I think anyone who thinks this is slow should try watching one of my other favorite shows, Twin Peaks, then get back to me. Pedro and Bella are fantastic, of course. I personally didn't have any reservations about Bella before the show premiered, and she still managed to blow my expectations out of the water. In my opinion, she's the absolute standout of the season so far, especially in her beautiful, tragic performance in Episode 7, and I can't wait to see her Ellie evolve. Speaking of Episode 7, my opinion of it seems to be much higher than most. Obviously, the main plot momentum slowed down, but considering we're about to ramp up to the intensity of the ending, that doesn't really bother me. An episode like this, to actually do a deep dive into Ellie's character, was essential in my opinion, since she's basically the linchpin of the franchise. I think this episode will be looked at more fondly once the season is finished, especially as we eventually move into adapting part two. Anyway, that was a bit of a ramble. Thanks for always having interesting and thoughtful discussions. I can't wait for the next two episodes, but I'm dreading the downtime between seasons. Thanks, guys. Jordan M. Yeah, the downtime between season one and two is going to be rough. That is for sure. Yeah. Hopefully we got some Wheel of Time or, you know, and or something like that to keep us company. Yeah, well, we had seven years between game one and two, so I don't want to hear it. All right. Fair enough. Hey, you know, I was just looking at our stats. Thank you, Jordan, for writing in from the UK. You may not have realized this, but our percentage of listeners from the UK has gone up by 0.35% between episode eight or between episode seven and episode eight. People are bringing their friends. That's right. We got 9.06% in the UK. So uh, that is amazing. Thank you, Jordan M. Thank you, uh, Gavin B. and everyone else. That's awesome. I want to just touch something really quick. He mentioned something about um, the pacing for the show. Um, And I think they are absolutely nailing the pacing of the show. Every single episode delivers on what it set out to, to do. The whole season has continued to move. We've gone across the country. It's never felt slow. And I think that this is really, at the end, once we do some reflection on the season wrap, I really think because of the pacing and the way that they're handling the overall arc, but the individual episodes are very standalone in a way, I think that this is going to give this uh, a score of an 11 for my industry ranking score, which 10 is the cap. But an 11 is an exceptional show, and I think that this show is breaking ground in a way because of this pacing thing. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm all on board about that. Cool. Yeah, I, I like the pacing too. I think it's doing very well. Like I said, I thought this episode could be a few more minutes, but that's a pretty minor criticism for the season. Next up is Nicole. 
Hey guys, just wanted to expand on Dawn of the Wolf. Oh. The posters are in the background. What? Oh, I was home. wolfing. <laughs> I was wolfing out. <laughs> the posters are in the backgrounds of several scenes in the game. Ellie asks Joel questions about this movie, and the unspoken context is that Joel knows all about this teen movie because he would have taken Sarah to see it. Oh, so, nice. Thus, he is reminded of her every time they see one. Since the game came out in early 2013... I think it's meant to be a spoof on the Twilight sure. series that was still culturally relevant at the time. Thanks for your coverage. Really enjoy it. Thanks, Nicole. That's pretty funny. Yeah. That's pretty funny. I mean, the Twilight series, my wife cringe watches it, and I, I watch it with her because it's pretty fun. Okay. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's awful. It's absolutely awful, but it's so fun to laugh at, and uh-huh. I love that they parodied it here. Awesome. That's a good... I, I love, to this uh, connectivity with it uh, that, you know... Joel, that this would have been something in Joel's uh, uh, past. And so if they keep, because everything's frozen in time. So whenever they walk through a town and there's a theater and, and Dawn of the Wolf is there. Yeah, that's very cool. Back to the UK, Viama, who is always on our Discord server, love Viama, says, hey guys, Viama here. Greetings to my fellow 8%ers. It's now 9%. you're a 9%er. Yes. Good job. I don't think the UK would have fared any better. All those scones and muffins, we'd be toast. Oh, and toast, too. <laughs> Good this point. is in response to my question last episode. UK people write in, would you have done any better in the cordyceps outbreak? And Viama says, no. Kim, via our website, thelorehounds.com, slash contact, says, Hi, guys. I found your podcast originally when I was looking for Andor coverage. As a Star Wars casual, I was dying to listen to some smart people engage with a really interesting show on its merits without any weird toxicity. Loved the coverage and have been a subscriber ever since. Wait, is she My calling real us, question. Is she calling us smart? I think so. Oh. That's fun. Okay, that's weird. I don't know how to take that. Thank you. My real question here is about The Last of Us. I did not play the game, and I'm watching the show with a mix of game players and non-game players. The game players said something interesting, that they had to rewatch episode three to really enjoy Bill and Frank's storyline. Since when they first watched it, They were filled with anxiety, knowing that their relationship sours horribly in the game, and they were waiting for the other shoe to drop until they realized the show was going in a different direction. I was blissfully unaware of any of that and just got to enjoy the episode. Then we got to episode six, and I was filled with anxiety because I was convinced that the show was setting us up for some kind of horrible betrayal from Tommy. Maria tells Ellie, be careful who you put your faith in. The only people who can betray us are the ones that we trust. That's followed by Joel's confession to Tommy that he's too old or and too slow to get Ellie to the Fireflies. He asks Tommy to do it, telling him the truth about her immunity. You're the only one I trust. Right up until Joel and Ellie left Jackson together, I was convinced Tommy was going to sell them out somehow to protect the town. I'm glad he didn't, but I was really surprised. Turns out none of the game players in the room even considered the possibility. They knew that it didn't happen in the game, and they were just busy worrying about what they knew was about to happen to Joel at the college campus. Since you guys have a game player and a non-game player, maybe at the end of the season it would be cool to hear you talk about how your expectations, or lack thereof, changed how you experienced the show, and where those expectations were subverted. Thanks. All right. I discussed this, right? Mm -hmm. In episode three, I said I was very anxious the whole time. I thought it was going to go wrong. Did you feel this in episode six? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I think even though Maria's counsel is wise, I never felt like Joel was going to be a betrayer. And I don't think Tommy 
Uh, and Tommy also didn't strike me uh, as a betrayer. So I wasn't worried about that. In fact, just thinking about this while you're uh, reading Kim's email, I was thinking, well, why would Maria say that? Why would they put that line in and give it to Maria? Be careful who to put your faith in. Only the ones that can betray us. The only ones that can betray us are the ones that we trust. You can also be betrayed um, unintentionally, like somebody can fail or or not live up to your expectations, right? It's not that they— Or decide to take a kid across the country without <laughs> telling you. That too. Or uh, shack up with some uh, cool communists and not get in touch, right? So I think, I think it's a much broader co- uh, comment that Maria—that uh, that it affects. While Maria is being pointed about it, I think it's a much broader comment that doesn't apply necessarily to any one individual or, or, or situation. And at least with Joel and Ellie, I, I've never felt that, that Joel was going to betray. Even though he was treating her like cargo, he seemed like the kind of guy who's going to fulfill the contract no matter what. Yeah. Well, I think that you have a good idea, Kim, that we should talk about on the last episode of how knowing or not knowing the plot affected our viewing experience. I've so already put a note in our um, document for the season wrap-up. Very cool. Kathy's back, and Kathy is here to tell us about the Bat Shard. Listening this week to the Take Out the Bat Shard versus Leave It In chat. I'm not an emergency doctor now, but I used to be. And well, I think, yes, we all agree you should never just take the thing out. That's also the advice for us in our current world. You stabilize the object so it doesn't move and cause further damage and, crucially, wait to remove until you're in the hospital. Ideally, in an operating theater with all the help you need. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's a good idea or anything. It's still probably a better bet to leave it in and try to get help, but... What trauma center is he going to head to? Jackson was five days away, and you'd be pretty lucky to have a random surgeon lying around there. Do you die now, or die probably more gruesomely later? Anyway, just thought I'd add some cheeriness to things. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. Uh, and yeah, it's really great to have a professional medical um, uh, unofficial advice for our, our coverage. Are you watching Ted Lasso? Because I feel like there's going to be like a sports injury there, and we gotta we gotta call you for that one. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, once once I saw this, it made total sense to me. Is that's the advice of our current world, and if you are in that world, it might be worse to have it jiggling around while you're riding the horse. Mm-hmm. In this world, yeah, it, it maybe well, and I think I forget who it is. I apologize um, uh, to the person who wrote in last time, but they said that you know they're. Joel pauses for a moment, and it looks like he's doing the mental calculation, and then he's like, yeah, do I leave it in, or do I take it out? Hmm, math, 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 take it out, and then, and then they carry on. So I think that adds more weight to that previous comment. Peter says, I love the whole Jackson vibe, and you guys are all over it, but have you considered that they might be the most <laughs> violent of any sanctuary? I assume that the scouts kill anyone who fails the test perhaps out of perceived need. That would be why it's the river of death. Perhaps the Native Americans are working with them. But they seemed pretty straightforward in saying, don't go there. Interested to hear your thoughts. I absolutely think that they are the most violent of the communities. But outwardly After this violent. episode? Yeah, they're violent. Okay, well, that's a good point. That's a good point. Relative scale of violence here. Now, Peter wrote in before this episode, so I'll That's give true. him credit. Yeah. But after this episode, I think that that argument goes out the window. 
Uh, but these, you know, Jackson's violence is directed outwards in, a, in an attempt to secure the inside, where um, Silver Lake's violence is about control and dominance and keeping people in line. I don't know. I think if they come across somebody, even if it's not Joel and Ellie, they're going hunting. Who is? Silver Lake or who are you Silver Lake. To? Silver Lake? Uh, uh, would they do it in non-famine times? Because they've only turned to cannibalism because of the harsh They've winter. got the taste now. That's true. That's true. They are forever corrupted. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, Jackson's definitely violent, but I think they definitely treat their own better. I don't know. I don't know. It's up for debate. And you kind of get why they do it, right? Yeah. Especially because they seem to be more interested in warding people off than killing them i think that they kill them if they can't like get them to fuck off right because they did lower their weapons once ellie and joel were not infected and if right. they are infected then you, you kind of should kill them anyway right you probably shouldn't let them lose their minds like that right and then are they no better than the boston qz with fedra you know summarily executing you know somebody yeah that's just the way it is yeah. in this world right yeah I mean, yeah, exactly. What are you going to do? You don't have a cure. Yeah. Aurora says, hey, shroom sluts. <laughs> what an opener. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud when I opened it, and I, uh, I didn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> Little question and thoughts about what conspires after episode seven, after the girls were infected. How do you suppose Ellie ended up with Marlene after Riley passed? Perhaps Ellie stayed in Riley's hideout waiting to change or die until someone came to pick up Riley for her transfer to Atlanta. And whoever was meant to move Riley instead found Ellie with a fresh bite mark. Why was she not killed on the spot? Do you think Ellie talked her way out of being killed as she did with Tess and Joel as they were fleeing the QZ? Or is it possible the Fireflies all knew who Ellie was because of Marlene? We know Marlene wasn't the one to find her because the first time they met was when Ellie was chained to the wall. Either way, I think this is how Ellie ended up with the fireflies in the first place. Just some thoughts. David, what do you think? Yeah, I think Aurora puts uh, their finger on some good questions here. I know that there's been some discussion on the inner tubes uh, about, oh, like I really wanted to see the scene of, the, you know, of what happened with Riley and Ellie and, all, and this whole question. Interestingly enough, I am totally okay not knowing anything from in that point. I'm just leaving it a black box. I like the drama of it. I like the the sense of not knowing. I think the the horror of uh, Ellie having to confront a turned Riley and dealing with that situation. Uh, I'm fine with leaving it a mystery for me. In terms of Ellie getting to the Fireflies. That is an interesting question, and I like the fact that Marlene, even though Ellie's heard reference to Marlene, she doesn't know her, so she doesn't know her when she's chained up, right? So that's the first time, even though Marlene knows all about Ellie. So that's an interesting mystery, and how it actually went down when the fireflies came in. Maybe Ellie had passed out. Maybe she was sleeping or you know, exhausted from the ordeal of, of having to put Riley down or, or something. You know, So the, yeah, there's a lot of questions, but I, I don't know. I don't feel like it's that important, that function of how she was captured or you know, taken in by the fireflies. Um, and I'm fine with leaving. I don't need to see Ellie dealing with Riley. 
I'm fine. With oh, I don't need that. to see her killing her, but I would have liked to see the moment where she realizes she's immune. I do feel robbed of that. Oh, of Ellie, uh, of Ellie's own realization. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. It's interesting. But I think that you're right, Aurora. I think in the game, she explicitly is found by Marlene. So they changed that, I guess, so that they could have that meeting later that we see. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe she invoked Marlene's name because she heard her a couple times. She heard Riley say her name a couple times. And she even said, who's Marlene? Maybe that's how she got out of it. But at least pretty smart. I'm sure she was able to talk her way out somehow. All right. Uh, that's the end of our feedback. That was awesome. Thank you, guys. Uh, again, we have episode nine, our final episode, and then we're going to have one more after that for our season wrap. So get your thoughts together. These are all great takes. Think about the meta context of the show, and then go to lorehounds.com and use the contact form or voicemail, or send us an email to tlou at thelorehounds.com. Well, we've got our patrons that we like to do a shout out for every week. We love our Patreon subscribers. They are our bread and butter here. They are what keeps us rolling on the Lorehounds machine and putting out more podcasts. And the more support we get, the more we've been able to do, especially this month, which is a very busy one. So thank you. Here's our shout out to our top tier, the Loremasters who spend 10 bucks a month. Incredible people. Thank you so much to Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H., Michael G., Michelle E, David W, Brian P, Nick W, SC, Peter O, Bettina W, Adam S, Nancy M, Lavinia T, and Dork of the Ninjas. Wow, that list is getting long, huh? We have 15 lore masters now. It's uh, it's wild. We're going to look back someday and be like amazed uh, uh, by this. We're going to have to do a thing where you speed up our our recitation of uh, <laughs> of all of our lore masters. <laughs> But thank you all so very much. It's, it really means a lot to us. It gives us a lot of joy to know that we're um, uh, delivering something that people feel is worth money. So thank you. Yeah. And if you want those benefits, patreon.com slash lorehounds. So thanks. John. You want to do your country shout out now? Yes. My country shout out. Australia. 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 We love you. G'day, boys. Oh, no. That's what they do. Oh, no. They say no. <laughs> oh, no. 3.25% of our listening audience. Um, thank you, Australia. You know, John, I lived in Australia for a total of about a year and two six-month blocks. I was in Sydney, uh, went out to, uh, oh boy, we went out into the country, we're out in Whitecliffs, um, and uh, yeah, I loved, loved my time down there. I really had a good time. It's a very interesting place coming as an American coming there because you see everything looks sort of very similar. Uh, McDonald's and fast food and all this kind of stuff. But the humor and, and a lot of the values are, are very different. And I had, had me some learning to do when I was down there, but I had a really good time and a uh, very fond memory. So thank you, Australia, for listening. And um, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note when you drop some feedback and let us know where you are, whether you're in Brizzy or if you're in Sydney or Sydney Cider or down in uh, or up in Melbourne. Um, yeah, love to hear from you. So thanks again. And if you're on the Patreon, we're doing a little review, mini review of Mel Gibson with <laughs> Mad Max, the 1979 movie, which was the best thing I can say about it is that it was 93 minutes long. So <laughs> here are my thoughts, my full thoughts on it on Second Breakfast, which is, uh, yeah, our Patreon exclusive. John, March is March Madness. What are we doing? Why are we, why are we 
pushing ourselves so so crazily. I don't know, but now I'm going to have to list this faster than I usually do. Right. The Last of Us. We're doing it. We're doing this episode. Finale, season wrap, and then the Lorehounds play The Last of Us Part 1 with Brandon the Bard, host of Time to Explain, a Destiny podcast. Then we're doing The Mandalorian Season 3 full coverage every single week, usually on Thursdays. Bad Batch and Visions we're going to cover eventually, probably the first (laughs) week of April. But we are very busy right now, but we really want to talk about it because this season's going great. Yeah. Ted Lasso Season 3, we are doing not quite full coverage, but we're doing every single episode. We're going to be talking about what we saw, I think the themes that we liked, and uh, pulling out some of the joyful and less joyful moments of this crazy good show. MC Universe just dropped. Surprise drop because we weren't sure when it was going to get recorded again, but it did. And we pushed that out nice and quick. So check out David and Jean talking about Kang, the multiverse, and all your phase five goodies. Second Breakfast will be out this Sunday for our patrons. Like I said, we're going to be talking about Mad Max and coffee. Who doesn't like coffee? I used to be a barista, so I've got some good intel there. Earthsea is happening. You might have heard a promo up at the top if you're listening the week that this comes out. Uh, We are covering the Earthsea cycle by Ursula K. Le Guin with our favorite Tolkien scholar, Marilyn Arpukila. Monthly, we're doing one book a month. New readers and veterans of Earthsea are welcome. Silmarillion stories this month is going to be of the coming of elves and the captivity of Melkor. We've already recorded it. It should be out towards the end of the month, and we're excited to get into it. In April, we're going to be covering Of Fingal and Melian with Mary Clay from That's What I'm Talking About, so we're excited for that too. June, we're going to have Maester Anthony on for Of Feanor and the Unchaining of Melkor, which should be a wild chapter. We were on Bukalu in the past, we covered a Theon chapter, and we will be on Bukalu again around April 13th, covering an Arya chapter. John, you sound exhausted uh, after reading all of those Loremaster patrons and our March programming notes. Uh, you must be wiped out. I, and we haven't even recorded most of them yet. <laughs> it's true. Well, we're still at the beginning of the month. Thank you, everyone. Uh, if you're interested in our Patreon, again, patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Subscribe today, ad-free access and early access, and you support us with production. Um, We've got more plans in the works for the Patreon, more benefits coming up. So uh, as always, please like, rate, and review. It really does help us. And if you want to hang out and chat with other like-minded folks in a cool community, check out our Discord server. Link is in the show notes below. It's a fun, cozy little place, and we like to jump on there and give our hot takes and kick around ideas. Uh, It's a lot of fun and there's a lot of good people there. So check it out. All right, John, I think that's it. Um, We are pushing. This was a long one. Thank you everyone for hanging with us. Uh, It was, I thought it was going to be, it was the easiest episode for me to do the outline of, but my Lord, have we had to cover a lot of detail on this, but it's been fun. So it is fun. Well, thanks for listening and see you next week. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities.
A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the fourth be with you all, all month and beyond.